0: Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics, and not the other way around. This week on the podcast, we welcome Bishop Marion Edgar Buddy, the Episcopal Bishop of Washington, D.C.
1: You can learn how to have courage when no one's watching, when you can stay in the relationships that are challenging now, when you can stay in the work that's feeling a bit monotonous, but maybe is calling you to a deeper level. And there's there's the steadiness of life as it's being lived.
0: Bishop Buddy serves as spiritual leader for 86 Episcopal congregations and 10 Episcopal schools in the District of Columbia and Maryland. The first woman elected to this position, she also serves as a chair and president of the Protestant Episcopal Cathedral Foundation, which oversees the ministries of the Washington National Cathedral and Cathedral Schools. Bishop Buddy is also the author of several books, including most recently, How We Learn to Be Brave, Decisive Moments in Life and Faith. I was captured by her title and wanted to learn more from her today uh, in a conversation about uh, more about learning to be brave, how to be brave in a time like this. So, Bishop Buddy, uh, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Jim. And um, thank you for everything you are and do, both at Georgetown and in the wider wider world. It's an honor to be with you.
0: Well, we've had a conversation going for a long time, and I'm just glad to have, have this moment to really talk about your new book. So one question I often like to ask my guests is, Bishop, how is your spirit? today? How's your spirit these days?
1: It's a wonderful question. It's also one that invites um, both vulnerability and introspection. And as I do that here uh, on the spot with you, I would say in the words of the old song, it is well with my soul. So thank you. Um, And yet, you know, I'm 63 years old. So I've been around, been around the sun as many times and life is full and the um, complexity and, and issues that as a person and as a parent and as a leader and as a friend, they're all mixed up altogether, right? So to say that one is well also acknowledges, um, I hope, as you would uh, most acutely understand, all of the complexity of life and how I might feel on a given day, um, it's certainly one barometer of wellness, but it's not the only one. You know, sometimes I have to um, remind myself of a greater source. In fact, daily, I have to remind myself of that greater source that um, allows us to be well, even when um, uh, indicators might suggest otherwise. So it is well. Praise God and to God the glory.
0: Well, uh, uh- Seventy-five now. I consider consider (laughs) you a young leader still.
1: Oh well, thank you. Uh, I'm an elder in most other settings, so I will take this with great uh, with gratitude and joy.
0: We're two elders talking here. Uh, I was just thrilled and delighted that uh, this new chair I've got a Georgetown has been named after our friend Bishop Tutu. But to your point, he often taught me that. the difference between optimism and hope mm. and you spoke to that a moment ago optimism is a feeling or a mood or you know even a personality type cup half full cup half empty people you see he, he told me that that hope is a choice a decision you make because of this thing that we call faith so days are up and down and your book is full of wonderful stories about your pilgrimage uh but your book is titled "How We Learn to Be Brave." It's a great title. What made you want to take on this topic at this time in your life and in our na- nation's life?
1: It's something I have thought about or pondered my entire life. And the subtitle, "The Decisive Moments in Life and Faith," is really the key uh, to um, how I've how I came to the book, and also, frankly, how life has been for me um, in that. Uh, I want it at a moment when, um, and as you know, um, you can be a, a leader in the church for decades and have moments when the spotlight shines briefly on you and then goes away for another decade, right? Um, and I had one of those moments in 2020 when the, the, the light um, was on me and the perception was that I was being very brave. And, um, and I'm not saying that I was or wasn't, but it was one of those very intense moments. And as a result of that, I was invited to do some larger reflection on the themes of courage. And I realized what I wanted to write about were those times in life, mostly private, some public, uh, some very you know obvious for the world to see, some within the recesses of our soul, where we're invited because of circumstance or grace to move in a way that requires more of us than we think we are or have. And in fact, that we do have, right? It moves us into a space beyond ourselves. And um, and the decisiveness part of it, Jim, is in these particular moments when it's happening, we know it. Uh, surely there are other moments when we are acting and we're not at all conscious, but these are moments where we are acting Stepping into that space, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, publicly. And we know we are beyond what we might call our repertoire of skills or our past experience. But we're invited there anyway. And it's how, that's the learning part, right? Because we are, it's like every nerve ending is attuned to our environment as well as our inner being. And we're learning something about ourselves and about what's happening Certainly about other people, and um, and I wanted to highlight in ways that everybody could see that that's not that's not reserved for the people that we would define as heroic, but it is something that is part of what it means to be human, to be a child of God.
0: We well, do do that very well in this book. Let's st- you start the book with that story. You got a lot of attention. Uh, let's so let's start start there on June first, twenty twenty. At a moment of national turmoil, uh, the riots or the demonstrations after the murder of George Floyd, then President Donald Trump used police and military force to clear all the peaceful protesters from Lafayette Square and then stood in front of St. John's Church and held a Bible upside down. It was a blatant attempt to co-opt the church into a photo op. St. John's is a church in your diocese. And you decide to speak out about it. What did you decide to say, and why did you decide to speak out?
1: As I as I wrote in the book, I was I was at home watching television with my mother, ninety years old. I just had her move in with me because of the pandemic, and we were watching the news. And it was a chilling day, Jim, because the the former president had just concluded a, a press conference in the Rose Garden where he. Um, And and as you alluded, it was a very volatile moment in the country. There were protests everywhere. And he was threatening the full force of the U.S. military on peaceful protesters across the country. Um, And so it was it was frightening. It was a frightening day. And as I was watching that, um, my phone began to light up with people telling me in real time what was happening at Lafayette Square. I I wasn't seeing it. I wasn't there. And it wasn't being shown televised um, on the Show I was watching, and um i I didn't know what to do, but I called a few people that I trust asking for um, their perspective like what what do I do what 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 do we do? And um, several of them said to me, uh, that the people need to hear he, to hear from you or from the rector, the, the head of the church, St. John's Church, before the sun goes down. Otherwise, you know, they just have to hear from you. And the, the rector was out of town, brief vacation, COVID vacation, and so it was me. And I, I knew that what I, was, what I was hearing and then ultimately seeing was the president using or assuming a mantle of spiritual authority to undergird his stance at the time. Um, and I knew that it was a misappropriation, as you said, of our symbolic, our symbols, our sacred texts, that sacred space at a time when tragically he was doing everything to make a situ- an inflame situation worse rather than using his voice and his power to bring calm and to bring people together. And that I needed to say as the person, as one person who had authority over that particular place that he did not speak for us. And moreover, not only did he not speak for us, that what he was saying and what he did was antithetical to our understanding of what it means to be faithful to the teachings of Jesus. So that's what I said. Um, I didn't have a lot of time to think. And I I have said, you know, during the presidency of Donald Trump, I said many things <laughs> about Donald Trump and the inappropriateness of his actions in a given situation. This was one of the few times when it got captured in the news cycle. Um, and I think that was because it was such a fraught moment. We were all spending a lot of time watching screens because not you know, we were homebound during the worst of the pandemic and what was happening in the wake of George Floyd had kind of captured all of us. So it was a particularly fraught moment. And um, I was glad to be able to speak to that moment but I don't want to overestimate that piece of it relative to the many heroic moments that people who were stepping up in that time. um, But it touched a nerve. And so that's, that's where for that brief, and it lasted about four days, when I was part of the new cycle. Um, And then as these things go, then it ended and life moved on. But um, that was the moment that that you mentioned.
0: Well, I know those moments when your phone goes crazy
1: <laughs> and yeah. you
0: say, "Uh Oh, what's going on.
1: Right. And, and I'm sure you've had it too. When people are saying, Bishop, you need to do something. Bishop, I need you to say something. You know, there was a, it wasn't, I, I can't say that I came to it of my own accord. It was the community summoning me out. And, um, and I wasn't feeling, you know, it, it, to be honest, it didn't really matter what I was feeling. Right. That wasn't, That wasn't a data point that I could pay much attention to. I just needed to do whatever I could to step into a public space. And fortunately, I was able to do that.
0: And you rightly point out that millions of people were standing up and stepping up and speaking out even at greater risk to themselves. But your voice at that moment was indeed very important. When I saw this happening on on the news, and then your voice came up, really, uh, 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 it was really important to me and to lots of us to see you as, uh, as a spiritual leader who had ecclesial authority over that space, where he ironically uh, held the Bible upside down uh, to, just to speak. But then you write in the book that uh, people uh, still recognize you in supermarkets for that moment. But the day after uh, you tried to organize a press conference— on the street in front of St. John's, and I was there, I recall. We were talking about that. And let's just say it didn't go as planned. <laughs> what, what happened and what did you learn from that
1: moment? Jim, as you recall, um, one of the things that happened as a result of June 1st is that I was, uh, our, our office, our diocesan office, which is not a big staff, was um, inundated in a good way with clergy, um, clergy from our own from our own diocese, our own people and leaders like you who were wanting to add their voice, wanting to join that stance, right? Wanting to say um, in their own words and in their own way uh, how they felt with that misappropriation and how their choice was to stand in solidarity with the peaceful protesters of that time, right? So it was all all of those things. Um, And so um, at the this you know it was it was very hastily prepared, not very well thought out we didn 't have the right equipment. We were overwhelmed by the number of cameras and journalists who were there that far um, that had be that had had arrived well before we did we couldn 't get to the church anymore because it had been cordoned off by by police and so we there was this makeshift um, I don't even think it was a podium, it was just a microphone where people people of faith could speak their piece to this sort of wall of microphones and cameras and lights that had been set up by media in a sea of protesters. So we were literally standing among uh, people who were standing and sitting in the streets of um, of Washington, D.C., trying to have a press conference. I can't remember if you spoke or what you said, if you did. I just know that when it was my turn to speak. I looked at the microphone and I saw these blinding lights. And as, I, as, as you know, I, a young man was off to the side sitting down and he said, sit down and shut up, right? Right? And it pierced my heart, right? And, um, and I realized I had nothing to say and I wanted, and so I, I sat down. I just went over and I sat down. And this young man tore into me. He was furious. And he said something to the effect of, we have been sitting out here, standing out here all day in the sun, and no one has paid attention to us. And you show up with your, and you show up, and then all the cameras come, and all the microphones come. And as soon as you leave, they'll leave, and we'll still be here, right? And I was devastated because he was right, he was absolutely right. And I just, I didn't know what to say. Um, Then another young man was sitting next to him and then this very kind Baptist minister um, came over (laughs) And he took, he said, he sort of stood me up, right? I was sitting and he stood me up and he sort of kind of gave a teach-in to all the people there and he's talking to them and just relating to these young people. And then he puts his arm around me. He says, now this sister is trying to do the right thing and it's important that you treat her with respect. And (laughs) I'm thinking, oh Lord, can I just disappear into the concrete? But then I sat down again and this other young man said, hey, it's nothing personal. Um, It's just hot out here and we're all really frustrated and scared. And it's been a really long day. And um, so it was a moment when I just realized, you know, um, that the moments for microphone and cameras are brief. And the hard work of change happens when you show up day after day after day, when there are no cameras, when there are no lights. And it's just putting one foot in front of the other toward a vision God has given you.
0: I remember when your office called and asked if we would even co-sponsor the event we said sure and my turn was going to come after yours to speak but you you had this great idea of setting this podium right in front of St. John's where it all happened with the upside down bible and it would have been a great scene and the sound system was there but then the sea of protesters caused the police to move them down the street and all of a sudden it was a uh, it was a uh, you know, just a microphone in people's hands to try to be heard. And I recall, uh, it was so, it's when something happens, and it doesn't happen the way you planned. And you're out of control. And you could tell those young people in the streets were, were angry about being pushed down the street. They were hot, they were tired. And they didn't care. They didn't, they weren't sort of Caring to hear what religious leaders.
1: (laughs) No, no, they were not. I recall
0: recall what what we, we walked over. I took that bullhorn and walked over in front of the police, all the armed police. And we got the crowd singing Amazing Grace. And they all knew the words to the song. This huge secular crowd of protesting students. They knew Amazing Grace and they sang the song. And it was the thing that quieted. turbulence and for a few moments we were all seeing amazing grace in all of our great religious diversity uh so so it turned out that something happened but not in the way that it had been planned and out of control but even before 2020 you had a moment with president trump uh in 2018 you had a surprise guest at a service where you were preaching president trump Melania's wife And you spoke about the Christmas narrative and how Jesus himself was a refugee. It was a time when the Trump administration was barring refugees from many countries and sharply restricting immigration. Tell us about that moment that came by quite surprise and why you decided to say what you said with President Trump right there in the pews.
1: Well, we weren't expecting him. I didn't know he was coming. I I found out um, we have two principal services on Christmas Eve. And at the early service, the vice president and his family came and um and we got when whenever um whenever heads of state or really anyone with secret service clearance is coming to a worship service at any of our churches we know in advance because there's always some clearing and security that needs to happen not clearing but in, you know t- testing that needs to happen and and a lot of security apparatus particularly for the president and so we heard that the vice president was coming um and then that likely it was likely that the, the president and his wife would be coming the Christmas Eve service. And the reason why was that this was a, during a government shutdown. This was when um, there was one of those great standoffs uh, between the president and Congress around budgets. And so everyone was in Washington. No one went home for um, for the holiday, which is unusual. The reason I preached the sermon, it was in the text and that was what I was preaching that night. So I didn't change my sermon because of the president's presence. We were all thinking about what was happening at the border our hearts were breaking. Um, it was horrifying. And it felt if there's any, now there are lots of different, not lots, but maybe three or four key themes that a preacher can lift up on Christmas and the birth of Jesus. And it seemed the most, it certainly was the most, um, power, it was most of one on my heart that year. Um, several people asked me afterwards if I hadn't, you know, I chose that particularly because I knew the president would be listening. And, you know, and the answer was no. Um, I thought about it. I thought about what I was saying in between services, knowing that he might be there, and I tried my best, Jim. Um, in moments like that, one of the things I try not to do is trigger unnecessary reactivity to the gospel by what I would consider uh, throwaway messages that will please some people but will really anger others. You know, to kind of preach to my own choir, if you will. And, um so I tried really hard to stay as loyal to the story as I could, and let the story speak and And I think at some point, I just said, you know it's it's in the text, right? I mean, this is our this is our savior, this is our story, um, because I don't think it's helpful, particularly in a polarized climate to um to sort of land on the parts of the gospel message that resonate most deeply with our perspective on things that you know are challenging for those who see the world differently, but to try to find wherever possible the stories and the images that bring us all closer uh, to one another as we attempt to do the impossible, which is to follow the teachings of Jesus consistently in our lives.
0: Well, the lesson here is you didn't, you stuck to the text. You didn't change the text. Uh, Bishop, Bishop Curry often says, go to the text, go to the text, let Jesus do the talking.
1: And also, and I didn't, you know, and again, I didn't, I didn't point a finger at him either. Like I said, it was for all of us. I mean, it was for all of us, and and um, and it was for me. So, Jesus, um, and you know, I. So that's that's how it is every Sunday, every Christmas. You do the best you can, and
0: so the president showed up, and uh, and you didn't point to him, but the text. Uh, he heard the text, and he had to deal with the text, and uh, so. Let's stick to the text, and who, who who's ever there needs to hear the text, not just our politicizing, but just what the text says. And you did that. So, but you write that we often think of bravery in the context of those big events, those mountaintop experiences like you had with the president uh, or at St. John's. But it's just as often in the valleys of our lives. You talk about in the book the ordinary day to day that we are called to be brave. Tell us about a moment or moments in your life. When during the ordinary course of things, you try to be brave and it didn't make the headlines.
1: There are most of them. Most of them in the book are in that category. I as you know, I, I divide those I divide the book into, into categories according to the type of moment. Uh, when we decide to go, in other words, when we decide to when we feel that the call is to leave where we are, physically or relationally, um, developmentally. And move to a different place, um, unknown to us. Um, perhaps because, perhaps for the reasons we are clear about, and perhaps uh, for a sense that we for toward a future that we can't yet see. Uh, equally, at other times, we are called that the call is to stay, um, not to leave, even when there is every reason, lots of good reasons to do so, or when even a part of us would love nothing more than to leave where we are. Um, and I would say, if I were to. Um, highlight the moments that are deeply private, I would, I would linger there in the times in my life. And I write of other people's lives when, when the invitation is to go deeper, was to go deeper where I was rather than seek the thrill or the energy, the drama of picking up and moving or going on to the next thing. Um, Like you, I'm a parent. I raised two sons. They're now, adults themselves, but in those early years of parenting, um, when I had to learn the gift of stability and providing a ballast of life so that other people could have the adventures that God was calling them to, um, that that was a hard edge for me. I had to learn and embrace the gift of not being everywhere where, you know, in every room where it happens, but to be in this room with my child and to ensure that he was raised with love and care and the kind of rhythms that would ensure a healthy life for him. Similarly, in my work as a parish minister, parish priest, I, I served one congregation for 18 years. And there were set in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, and uh, many times when I would have loved to leave. And when the call was sometimes by choice or sometimes by disappointment, or as a result of disappointment, when I heard a deeper invitation, no, this is a time, if you stay, you can go deeper, and you can tend to parts of your life that you're not paying attention to, you can learn skills that you don't have now. And you can, you can learn how to have courage, when no one's watching, when you can stay in the relationships that are challenging now, when you can stay in the work that's feeling a bit monotonous, but maybe is calling you to a deeper level uh, so that's what I would highlight as one one of the areas where uh, no one is no one is uh, cheering you on necessarily um, and uh, there's there's the steadiness of life as it's being lived.
0: Your book is a very good read about those personal stories, and i it's it's good that you came from eighteen years in Minnesota. <laughs> to Washington. I'm from Michigan. And, you know, Washington isn't always the most real place. But in Minnesota, you had you tell great stories about real people in your parish and real-life uh, hopes and disappointments for you and all kinds of things. So, so it isn't all, all the mountaintop moments. It's, it's mostly those personal moments uh, that we have to make choices, that, but they're real choices. You talk a lot about Dot King in the book, in many chapters, uh, and not just his great public moments, but I would say his inner struggles and transformations. You quote him as saying, As my sufferings mounted, I soon realized there were two ways I could respond to my situation, either to react with bitterness or seek to transform the suffering into a creative force. Now, you uh, you have a line after that that I just love in the book. I underlined it right away. It said, uh, "So how did how did King, as you write, and here is your line, turn redemptive suffering into not merely a political strategy, but a way of life?"
1: Thank you for reading that. It um, it inspires me just to hear it said. Um, well, redemptive suffering is is a theme that King embraced very early on in his public life. Um, and it became, uh, it became his way. And I include him primarily in, in a chapter where I reflect on the times in life when we are called to accept things that we would never choose, either personally or societally. And for King in the struggle for justice and equality for uh, black people in this country, there were so many times when um, both just from the, the, the history that he came from, both in his own family and the legacy of Jim Crow, you know, following the years of reconstruction and slavery before that, that he had he was raised from a people that learned and experienced the redemptive power of Christ through suffering. And so he, embodied, he, he was raised in that context and he accepted it as his way of following Jesus and his understanding of how, and this is a quote from him, how redemptive, how undeserved suffering can be redemptive. That's what he means by redemptive suffering, I think, is that if you embrace the suffering that you do not deserve and you choose not to be bitter, you choose not to respond with violence, even when violence is inflicted upon you, when you choose to love even those who are seeking to destroy you, that there is a power unleashed that is embodied and incarnated in Jesus on the cross, that you may not experience in, your, in that moment, but that cannot be contained and will in fact transform the world. And he tasted it, he saw it, he experienced it in glimpses um, that were euphoric for him, right? And you can, you can tell when he's preaching and when he's writing from that experience. But he also knew um, that after a moment of seeming euphoria or triumph will come a setback of suffering that if you don't, if you're not prepared for or willing to embrace, you will collapse into bitterness and despair. Um, I mean, think of it. For example, just you know, the march on Washington, which we just have all finished thinking about in August. What a moment that was for him, and that the bombing of the Sixteenth Street Church in Birmingham, Alabama, happened the very next month. And so he's going from talking about the dream that he had that resonated with so many people in that moment, and then going to. Preached eulogies at four little girls who were bombed in their church, right? And that's that was in 1963, right? And so to follow the course of his life and how he embraced that, I don't think we can ever stop learning from his life and his example, um, and which is why there's a constant need for us to be turning again and again to to him.
0: He is an example of what you say in the book about the moment. Calling someone because he was so brilliant, uh, and he really had this idea of being a, a professor, a brilliant professor, quietly teaching someplace. And he took Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, not uh, Ebenezer, his where Daddy King was pastor. He could have risen up there. He goes out to, to Dexter to to Montgomery, and and then he becomes. and this bus boycott begins, and and. Uh, you know, people don't know he rose to be the the head of the Montgomery you know Improvement Association. Because he was the youngest pastor in town, didn't have many enemies yet, uh so he was a, a safe choice. And also they heard he was a good speaker. <laughs> so but the moment from then on called him, and it led to a to a suffering in his life that he never uh Invited, but it just came to him. And then, as you say, it wasn't just a political strategy, but a way of life. And the moment called him to that.
1: And there's a, there's another scene too. I can't remember if I included in the book, but it's it's written about in many of the books about him, and I'm sure. I'm sure I read it again in Jonathan Eig's brilliant new biography of King. But the way he embraced nonviolence, and there was a time when he was speaking at an event in the South somewhere, and somebody rushed him on the stage with a knife. Do you remember that? And his instinct was, as someone—if you imagine that someone's coming toward him with a knife—and his instinct is simply to drop his hands, right, and not to not to resist. And so, and 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 you know, ultimately, other people tackled this person, and he was taken off the stage. And King basically said, "Don't." Don't hurt him. We need to pray for him. But what the moment was, wasn't so much transformative for him, but it was transformative to the people who were watching him, particularly those who weren't sure that they could trust him because they could see that he, this wasn't just something to get attention, that he, he had so internalized nonviolence that it was his first reaction when someone was coming to take his life.
0: I was really grateful that you also write about one of King's key mentors, Howard Thurman, uh, the black contemplative uh, pastor educator. Um, he had a religious vision of sorts while visiting the Khyber Pass along the border between Pakistan and India. Uh, what was the dream he he had there, and how did he try to live it out?
1: Yeah, um, thank you for mentioning Howard Thurman. I one of the one of the quests, learning quests I've been on in the last five years or so is really to understand the leadership of the black and white of the civil rights movement um, of the earlier part of the 20th century. Because in some ways I think their example is more instructive to us than, than the civil rights era because they were um, they were struggling uphill all the time, <laughs> right? Under circumstances that were just so inhospitable to them. And Thurman's example is so strong but my understanding of that moment is that God gave him a vision. He too, I mean, he first, actually, very drawn to the teachings of Gandhi, um, went to India and to to travel the world in search of inspiration that gave him a vision of a truly non-racial Christian community. That was the vision God gave him. He, he saw the possibility of living in Christian community that was fully inclusive and celebratory of all humans. And in the 40s and 50s, that was unheard of in this country, unheard of. He saw more of that kind of ease among, um, there are certainly, there's, there's a lot of racism in other parts of the world, but it felt different to him than his own experience in the United States. And he came back from that Pass moment and he didn't. he wasn't able to act on it right away, but there was this dream of one day uh, creating a space where Christians could come together across the color line um, in in the United States.
0: Well, reading Jesus and the D- Disinherited, I would suggest to anyone listening here, or Howell Sermon on the Parables, an amazing book about his take early on about all these parables, uh, well, he, he then went on after time to do that dream, and I, something I never knew until reading this book was this connection you described between Howard Thurman and Eleanor Roosevelt. He was the keynote speaker at his send-off when he left Washington, D.C. for San Francisco and was among the first to sign a commitment card for his new interracial church. Uh, why was that a significant Connection for you in the book.
1: Well, I, I love Eleanor Roosevelt. I love her story, and I, she features um, heavily in the in another chapter of the book. Um, and one of the things I love about her is how she chose to remain married to FDR even when she had every reason to leave him. But in choosing to remain his wife and his life partner really redefined herself redefined herself in his ma- in that marriage and then you know claimed her identity as someone committed to um, to the common good and to justice um, writ large in the tumultuous years um, both during the Second World War and afterwards and the time when their paths cross is when Thurman is the um, is the head of the chapel at Howard University. And so she is totally immersed in integration issues across the country, to FDR's chagrin, by the way, because it's not a space he's able to go to, although he, you know, he encourages her to go, but he doesn't always listen to her when she comes back. And so she became the um, she was despised in the South by the white Southern establishment because she just simply refused to acknowledge Jim Crow. She just, she just ignored it. And so she, and I think she was just an admirer of Thurman's and they had different, their paths crossed in different ways. But when she got wind of what Thurman was leaving Howard to do, which was to go to San Francisco with a co-pastor to create this new community based on that dream, she signed up right away. And as you know, as you said, yeah, I know it's a great, it's a great story.
0: Winnie have always been a fly in the wall for any conversations between Eleanor Roosevelt and Arthur Thurman. Oh, and, and King, you, I, I, love how you refer. I love his, his, his reflections on the Good Samaritan, the sermon he preached. King called, uh, called it dangerous unselfishness, an illiterate peril. And and he writes how uh, the first question the Levite and the priest ask when they see the wounded man is if they stop to help him, what will happen to me? Uh, And the Good Samaritan King writes, reverse the question, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? That reversal of the question is such a powerful thing. What does that mean to you and all of us right now today?
1: Wow. Um, And of course, the context that King was speaking that was when he decided to stand in solidarity with the striking sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee, which uh, which took, you know which ultimately was the scene where he lost his life, but and he was encouraged by all of the people who were trying to protect him not to go, and that was his response. and um, And so to put the other first, and um, and so in the context of our lives, wherever we see ourselves, to allow the story that Jesus teaches and King's example and version of it to Create a space where we are able to displace our in our self-preserving tendencies to ask the question of whoever it is that is before us, either physically or in a larger context, to ask the same question, and to recognize that if we if we respond in the if we if we dare to ask the Samaritan's question, it. It opens the door for us to be agents or, or vessels of reconciliation or of love, of forgiveness, um, of sacrificial giving, because we're, we're, we're not putting our needs at the center, but we're putting someone else's dignity, someone else's life trajectory, someone else's possibility um, first, which is, which is how Jesus lived um, and how he taught, uh, how he encouraged us to live and is the way of love. And so it's, um, it's a very humbling question. um, Because we can't do it all the time. I mean, I can't do it all the time. And I know it. And every time I know I can't, and I don't, I don't feel very good about myself. I, I, you know, it's like, oh, but when, when it catches me, and I'm able to put my needs aside, or my fatigue, or my, you know, fill in the blank, so that I can by grace be present to another, or make something possible that by my efforts um that's that's joy
0: and it's it's more than compassion it's to help a man on what can call the dangerous jericho road also took some risk you know what will happen to you are these robbers still you know waiting to find somebody else so it's compassion but also risk to do what he's calling us to there so we are at a critical moment i'm going to close with this question you're a good preacher, and I'd like you to riff a little bit about this As a preacher. We are at a critical moment in American history, uh, a test of democracy and faith of both at the same time. Why is it important for, for us at all levels in our communities and relationships, uh, to be brave? Uh, this is a moment that calls for bravery, which you call us to in your book. Why is it important for us to be brave right now?
1: Well, you're, the setting up of you the question is in in part the answer to the question, Jim. Um, there's a lot at stake, and um, there's a lot at stake for um, our civic life. Uh, there's there are there's a lot of stake in our in our congregational lives in the life of faith in general. Um, we don't need to rehearse all of the issues. People can fill in the blank as they're listening to us talk. And what's important, I think, is for each person to ask the question ourselves, what would courage look like it, for me in this situation? Where might I be called in a spiritual sense or drawn by life or by God to make my offering um, in whatever context or situation that is before us? Right, And so I can't, any more than you, I can't guess what that might look like for any given individual who would walk into your office and of mine and say, What should I do? But if we listen and if we look at the, if we pay attention to what's tugging at our hearts and what's claiming our attention and what's right before us, chances are God will, God will, will give us enough light to take a step, to take a faithful step toward the good. Um, and I think the, the forces that would prefer us not to do that are many. The forces that would prefer to keep us distracted and tired and consumed with things that really aren't that important are everywhere. And to, to gently, lovingly say to ourselves, let's figure out, let me think today about what matters most. And let me put whatever energies I have toward the good, um, be it on the, public, on the public stage in the public arena, where some are clearly called. Or in other spheres, be it your school where your children attend, or the school district meeting where they're talking about um, issues of importance, where might I show up with my with my desire to offer, you know, like the the loaves and fishes story in the Gospels, offer my bit toward the good that it might become in God's hands something greater. Um, and I, you know you don't you don't need and nobody needs us to remind us of the environmental crisis we mean you know, we're all we all know what's what's um, what's so challenging is that what they can all these issues seem so overwhelming in the in the theoretical in the theoretical realm and where we find hope i think is where we are given we give ourselves permission to get involved in something that is actually moving toward goodness right that's when we feel alive and less that's where hope Resides. Um, even if we fail at a given endeavor, you just feel you just feel like you're you're working towards something that matters, and your gifts are being used in a way that um, may or may not prove fruitful in a given moment, but are part of that arc, as King and others would say, that leans towards justice, that leans toward beloved community. So, I think it's a way not to give up hope. You know, um, it's easy to be cynical. It's easy to do nothing. Doesn't take energy in you all. No energy at all. But to actually step out and to be brave and to to carry hope, Um, especially for those of us who are, you know, um, have other people coming up behind us, like, let's be, uh, you know, what can I do to make it easier for them so that they can live with hope in the world we're leaving to them?
0: Well, in the time immediately before us now, it's, it's a time to learn to be brave. So I thank you for your book. I encourage our listeners to read it. We all need to be brave in these times ahead. And the personal lives, our communities, and at a national level, our bravery is going to be required of all of us. And that takes us back to our faith, which you do throughout the book. So thank you for writing this.
1: Oh, well, it's always good to be with you, Jim. Thank you.
0: For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And follow me on Twitter, Jim Wallace, if you like. Blessings for the soul of the nation. Thank you all.